One of those things that has been able to happen over the last couple of weeks has been, um, I've been able to spend some time with pastors down in Santa Cruz as part of our, our church network with Venture Church Network, and then also was able to, two weeks ago, up to, to Portland and spend time pastors with some pastors there uh, as part of a, a sermon workshop. Uh, each year I try to attend a workshop that is actually just continues to provide feedback for me in preaching and uh, in, in passages and beginning to, to work through with other pastors um, these passages. One of the things that has come up consistently has been that for the first time in really, truly, uh, the, the 29 years of ministry I've been a part of is that to go to one of these things and to hear everybody actually on the same page, but not on the same page in a good way, on the same page of different, the body of Christ, grumbling in and amongst itself. And one of the challenges, meaning not that each person in each church has that, but that within the body of Christ, what people were seeing was a lack of reasonableness amongst one to another. That in our culture, in our culture with COVID, in our culture with uh, politics, that reasonableness seemed to be something that was lacking. Basically, everybody has reasons, but at times they lose their reasonableness. And one of those ways that that was borne out and was a, for some of you may be familiar with a recent study by, by Facebook. So many of you know that a few weeks ago, Facebook had a whistleblower that came out. And one of the things that, that happened as a result of that whistleblower was that they found that actually the CEO of Facebook had lied under oath to Congress about their knowledge of damage being done to young girls specifically via Facebook. This whistleblower came out and demonstrated and released a report, an internal report from Facebook that showed that it did severe damage, mental and emotional damage, to girls in the preteen and early teen ages. Along with that, which is a lesser known report, which was submitted to MIT, and not necessarily carried by large news groups, but carried by some Christian magazines, Relevant Magazine, and a few others, was the fact that this study also found that of the 20 top Christian sites visited on Facebook, 19 are run by European trolls with the sole purpose of creating division. It's to in fact, the stated goal is to, to create not only division, but extremism. And it was interesting, it saddened me, that as Christians, as followers of Christ, the bastions, the bearers of God's truth, the ease at which the enemy can creep in to create unreasonableness amongst its body. And so this morning, we're going to be talking about this passage out of Philippians 4, and we're going to be focusing, kind of centering around Philippians 4, 5, which says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone, for the Lord is at hand. But the context of this passage helps us. It gives us understanding. It tells us what's actually happening here in the church of Philippi, and the truths that we'll be looking at today are true across the board in all aspects of our lives, but they are unique 
to the unity and joy of the body of Christ. So let's look at this passage together. It's out of Philippians 4, verses 1 through 9. Let's go ahead and stand as we we read this together. And then we're going to dive right in. It says this. It says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Eudea and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the unity that we have in Christ Jesus. And may our unity be seen, our reasonableness, our love for one another, May it be seen by all. May it stand out in a culture that has become increasingly unreasonable. Father, I pray this morning that you would speak to each of our hearts. Show us, God, those areas in our own heart where our own disbelief may get in the way of your unity. Show us those areas, God, where your blessing and favor is moving forward. Allow us, God, to reflect your glory as your bride. And may it be as a people who are seeking you solely. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. One of the things that I've been blessed by, and I hope you've been blessed by too, has been a unity of spirit within Redemption Hill. But the truth is, is that our culture presses in on that unity consistently. Let me throw out some images to you for a second. If I were to tell you of an individual standing before me, and that person wore a mega hat. And on the back of their shirt read, don't tread on me. And they drove a big truck and a cowboy hat. What do you know about this person? Now, if I were to take another person and I were to tell you that On the front of their shirt was tie-dye. And written on the back was BLM.
And they wandered around wearing masks indoors and outdoors. And while they drive their cars. What do you know about this person? The truth is, you know nothing. The truth is, we know nothing. We have no idea who they are. But we've already formulated in our heart and mind who they are. Well, in Philippians, Paul right here is saying, stand firm. Now, Paul is imprisoned. He's imprisoned. He's writing this letter from prison. And his first words to them are, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. Now, why in the world is he telling them to stand firm? He's telling them to stand firm because he's just been dealing with the false teachers in the church and those friends and fellow partners who have fallen away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says there that they have now moved their sights away from God and to the things of the earth. He says, for many of whom I've often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. And then he says this, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. See, Paul is longing for the Philippians to stand firm. And because he's longing for them to stand firm, one of the things that he's actually going to say here is that his love for them and the joy together as part of the brotherhood comes in their unity. Now, in verse 2 and 3, it says this, I entreat Judea and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, Paul does not correct either one of them. He actually pleads with them. That word entreat means to plead. He pleads for them to agree in the Lord. What this means is, this is not an essential matter by which they are arguing. It's not an essential doctrinal matter. We don't even know what kind of matter it is. It could be that they disagree over the rulers of Rome. It could be that they disagree over a non-essential doctrine. The scripture doesn't tell us because it's not important. They're actually experiencing division on matters that have nothing to do with the furtherance of the gospel of Christ and the unity of the body. And so he tells them here, you two agree in Christ. Now this is hard. Because to agree in Christ, it means that I have to lay down the fact that I'm right. And what we're going to see is that having good reasons doesn't mean you're reasonable. Not according to Christ. And he goes on, and he says there, 
you two agree, but then he says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. The body of Christ is to actually help one another be reasonable, to be in agreement, to agree in Christ, to help see what's actually important and what's actually not important. I remember talking to some pastors years ago, and the pastor shared with me, he said, you're early in ministry. He said, I had come to the conclusion that unless a person believed about the end times, that God was going to come in a pre-trib, pre-millennial way, I believed that people couldn't be saved. And we talked about the division that occurred as a result of that teaching. Now, he may be right. I don't know. He may be right about his belief, but that does not have to do with salvation. It does not have to do with the very essence of the gospel. And it's not worth breaking the unity of the body of Christ over. Today, we have a culture that doesn't know how to agree we have a culture that doesn't know how to compromise. Now, compromise doesn't mean the letting go of convictions. And maybe compromise is actually the wrong word, but it means that we don't know how to be agreeable. We don't know how to find common ground. And the truth is, maybe culture has moved too far apart, but the church hasn't. The church's unity is not in a political system. It's not in who you vote for as president. It's not what you think about COVID. It is Jesus. And as a result of that, that brings our unity, our joy. It's why I can say that we long for one another. As I listen to these pastors speak and tell stories of churches that have split, listening to them share the stories of their own congregation members chewing them up and down, one side and the other, you can find that here in Sonoma County too. Talk to those that administrate our Christian schools, talk to other pastors in our community. What is seen is not the joy and brotherhood of Christ, but is a defending of worldly systems with eyes off of the only one who is the true source of resolve and healing. So he says here, what's his answer to this conflict this non-essential conflict, he says in verse 5 and 6, or excuse me, 4 and 5, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Here's what he's saying. Remember that God's on the throne. God is so sovereign over all of this. Start there. He's on the throne. You are not. I am not. 
And God is still sitting on his throne and he's still worthy to be praised. And then he says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. For the Lord is at hand. What does that mean? Well, reasonableness can be translated in Greek a number of ways here. The first way deals with humility, being humble or considerate. It's actually a, a place of placing yourself lower than someone else. The second thing it can mean is to be gentle, good-tempered, meaning the things of the world do not move and invoke us to hopelessness or to despair. They don't invoke us to a place where we're just constantly angry, where we're consumed by these things. This reasonableness carries with it a graciousness. The word epidios, which is the word here that's described reasonableness, is translated in each of these ways. Forbearing is another thing that it implies. Long-suffering with one another. What does that mean? It means that if I think that somebody else is being foolish... I don't give up. I don't continue to try to persuade. I walk in forbearance with them. I long suffer with them. I stay engaged with them. It means that I tolerate things that I don't necessarily agree that in the end don't matter. It carries with the idea of being even or moderate not being prone to extremes, not demanding on extremes, but seeking understanding. James 5.8 says here, he says, you also be patient, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Why does Paul tell us that the Lord is at hand? What he's trying to remind us of is that God is returning and God will restore these things. But the time is short. Don't spend your time on matters that in the end have no bearing on the purpose and weight of the gospel. That's what he's saying. The division within our culture that exists today has no bearing on the gospel of Christ. It simply gets in the way. Let me ask you this. Are you more passionate about masks and vaccines and personal rights and the establishment of life? And Are you more passionate about these things than you are the gospel of Christ? What do people know about you in this season? Do they know that you are a bastion of God's gospel love? Or are you a warrior for something different? It doesn't mean that there's not a place to stand up for our beliefs. But it does mean that as the body of Christ, the primary responsibility we have is bearing witness of the truth of the gospel. And God says that they will know you by your love for one another. 
And therefore, we are to be reasonable with one another. We are not to be those that are prone chasing after positions that we agree or disagree with. We are to cling to the one position that we know that we are a child of God. And the gospel of Jesus is the most important thing that is seen and declared. So how do we stand in Christ and walk in reasonableness? It's a really interesting passage because most of us are familiar with these verses and they do apply to all the other areas of our life. But notice that in the context of this passage, this section of scripture is actually dealing with how to resolve conflict on non-essential matters within Christ's church. This is awesome. I shared with somebody else that we went through the book of Philippians in 2009 and 10. I would preach this section entirely different. Don't disregard what was said during that time. But you might want to on some level. Because the truth is, the context of this helps us see what's really happening. So how do we stand in Christ and walk in reasonableness? The first thing we do is seek God with thanksgiving in all your concerns and worry. Speaking of our culture dealing with COVID right now, what you have is you have a tribal group. And guess what? We live in a culture that wants to create tribes. It, it likes to box us into tribes. And so you have a, a tribe that seems to be more concerned about rights. And you have a tribe that seems to be more concerned about life. Well, here's the thing. Jesus laid down both his life and his rights so that we might experience him his presence, relationship with the Father. The truth is, is in everything, there are going to be things that God calls us to do where we lay down both our life and our liberty. We have to remember that God is still on his throne. And he says here, do not be anxious for anything. Do you see the cause for the dispute that's taking place with Bia and Syntyche? It's actually anxiousness. Think about that for a minute. Think about the place that our culture exists in today. It's anxiousness over a loss of rights, a loss of freedom, and a loss of life over the effects of COVID. This anxiousness, he says, do not be anxious for. Don't let the anxiousness become a place of division. But rather, he says, by supplication and thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. So this anxiousness actually, in Greek, literally carries it the idea with it of being divided. It's dividing you from God, and it's dividing you from others. It's distracting you from God, and it's distracting you from others. This anxiousness that's being spoken of is the very thing that takes our eyes off of Christ and put it, puts it on whatever we are concerned about. The political system today that we have in America, where now we're no longer Republicans and Democrats who ascribe to a, a set of beliefs, but we are now Trump followers and Biden followers. We have allowed the culture to define us in this way. My identity is not in Trump or in Biden. 
As followers of Christ, our identity is in Jesus. Do you see the difference? See, when Christ is still on his throne, he is our unity. He's the one that we get to serve with freedom and with joy. And he says here, don't be anxious. Now, 1 Peter 5, 6 through 7 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That prayer starts with reasonableness, a humility. And then he says, by supplication. What does that mean? It means that we specifically put our request before God. But it carries with it the idea of pleading with God. And it carries an urgency. So what does that mean? Ever have a time in your life where you're like, man, I was praying about it, but God didn't do a thing. And then when you're really pressed on it, you realize you prayed about it like once or twice. You're like, well, God, you didn't talk, answer me the first time I prayed, so why should I continue? Here's his point. This should be a constant, continual prayer. One of constant pleading with God. And the pleading is not simply, God, change their heart or their mind. But the pleading with God is, God, this is what I see, but I'm coming to you with humility. Is there something in me that needs to be changed or shifted? And it's done with an urgency. Not waiting for another day, but moving towards it now. And then he says, that this supplication is to be offered up to God with thanksgiving. Well, praise is acknowledging that God is on the throne. Thanksgiving is acknowledging what God has already done. It's thanking God. It's being reminded for the, the blessings that are already happening, that are already present. It's coming before God and saying, Lord, I may not like this situation, but I've seen you deliver so many other times. I can't tell you the number of times in my life where I have worried about finances. And each time I'm drawn back to the number of times that God has supernaturally provided for us. And it continues to happen over and over and over again. When we go to the Lord with thanksgiving, we're reminded of the work that he's already done and that the, the situation before us doesn't seem as large. Psalm 94, 19 adds this. It says, when the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Your consolations cheer my soul. Isn't it easy with all the noise around us to just become discouraged and frustrated? Isn't it easy when we just hear things all day that are things that bad news? Like you try to watch the news today? Good night, right? I mean, unless you see Jonathan on the news the other day, 
right? A good story about helping a, a person, right, on the beach, a surfer bit by a shark. If you haven't seen the news, you got to go check it out. Just the story on Jonathan. Don't watch the other stuff. But most of our news, right, is extreme. It, it's intended to, to titillate, to, to move us to a place where we're heightened emotionally. And now we have news networks that are not just known for being news networks, but you've got to pick which political persuasion you prefer most. That's not news. It's a culture that seeks to divide. And in the face of that culture is reasonableness. Within the body of Christ, we should be able to have the difficult discussions about COVID without getting angry at one another and without dividing over it. Within the body of Christ, we should be able to have conversations about politics without becoming angry and frustrated with one another. Because our unity is not based on the things of this world, but it is solely foundational in Christ. We have a big movement today of Christians moving out of California, a large one. Now, there are reasons to do so, job changes, can't afford to live here in the state, maybe retirement and Retirement will go far, farther someplace else. But too many people are moving out of California to align themselves with the politics of another state. As the follower of Christ, our unity is in Jesus, not in politics. And God has planted you here, no matter how difficult it is to be his witness until he calls you away. The Lord never had us chase a life of ease. The life that we were to pursue was one of Christ, which is marked by sacrifice. Sacrifice and submission. Too often, we want a, the culture to be like-minded with us. It never will be. It never was in Scripture, and it won't be now until the day that Jesus returns. We need to be a reasonable people who see that our unity is not found in the exterior things of the world, but our unity is found in Jesus. The second way that we stand is that we focus on those things which bring glory to God and reveal His goodness. This goes back to what I was sharing with you earlier so focus on those things which bring glory to God and reveal His goodness. When we're inundated with all of this stuff, all of the noise, boy, it is easy for our eyes to come off of Christ. We've got Facebook and Instagram, Snapchat. We've got TV channels, cable news. We've got political wires. We have it all, and none of it seems to bring satisfaction or unity, because the only one that brings unity is Jesus, and the unity is found in his word. So, 
Notice the exhortation. He says in this passage, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Who does this remind you of? Truth, honor, justice, holiness, loveliness, commendability, excellence, and worthy of praise. All those things that are Christ-like. He says, focus on Christ and those things which are Christ-like. Dr. Walter Calvert did a study on worry. And in that study on worry, he indicated that only 8% of the things people worried about were legitimate matters of concern. The other 92% were either imaginary, never happened, or involved matters in which people had no control anyway. It's fascinating, isn't it? It doesn't mean that our thought lives are to be serious, but we are to, as F.B. Meyer puts it, exclude from our minds all that is dishonorable and admit only what is worthy of God to our minds and to our hearts. It's hard. It's hard in a world that goes the opposite direction. But this is the beauty. In a world that is unreasonable, the reasonableness of Jesus Christ in the life of his church stands out as a bastion of light. People don't understand it. I serve on a board within the Windsor education system. And I am probably very different than everybody else on that board. In a conversation this week, in a place where I significantly disagreed with everyone else in that room, one of the teachers in that meeting wrote a simple note back to me. And she said, thank you for your hesitations and for your diplomacy. As followers of Christ, when we're reasonable, we stand out. And when we're reasonable with one another, it stands out in a world that only knows to love people who agree completely with them and to hate those who don't. Now this idea of commendability that he speaks of here deals with the idea of being gracious and speaking well of others. It's the exact opposite of a critical spirit. It means that when I deal with people that my, I'm not going and dealing with them simply because I have to and because they're an annoyance and a nuisance to me. But it is that I begin to find that God's grace is still sufficient for them. And our thought life needs to exhibit this grace. So Paul then says, what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me Practice these things. Now here's the best part. 
He says that when we practice these things, these are things that are ongoing, that we don't do once and come back to the Lord and say, yeah, Lord, uh, this guy's a jerk over here. I prayed for him today, and things haven't changed. So we're done. It means that I persist in practice to pray on these matters. It means that it's an ongoing process. And so he says to pray and to think and to practice these things, what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. If we're going to practice those things, the first thing that has to happen is that we submit. We submit to the Lord in these matters, whether we like them or not. And then we persist in them. And then notice what the promise of encouragement here is. I love this. It's one of the times that God says, listen, when you do these things, this is what will happen. He says this in verse 7. He says, and the peace of God will surpass all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 9, he says, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. When we do these things, the peace of God will be present with you and guard you in Christ. The peace of God will be present with you and guard you in Christ. That is awesome. That changes our entire outlook. The peace of God overwhelming our lives, no longer consumed by the things of this world, but settled in his peace, being able to be speakers of truth, And releasers of the kingdom. That it is God's job to change lives. It is God's job to bring right perspective. And in doing so, he not only does that in the others that we disagree with, but he also does it in our lives. John 14, 27 puts it this way. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let your hearts not be troubled. Let, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And then Isaiah 26, 3, which I love, which speaks so completely to this, where he says, You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts you. All the anxiousness of our culture and our world is actually resolved in Christ. And as his church, we need to be a people who are reasonable. It is in our reasonableness that we are able to stand firm in his peace. And it is because of his peace that then we are able to stand firm. One pastor put it this way, he said, when Christ is out of our thoughts, when we no longer see things in the light of how he views them, when we no longer are under, as it were, the confidence in his sovereignty, then all of a sudden, Mr. God's peace doesn't function anymore, and we're left with troubled minds and troubled hearts. But where we have that confident trust in the Lord, so much so that we can thank him in the midst of our petitions, then we have Mr. God's peace on duty, and he is the protector of the peace of our souls. 
that couldn't be a clear perspective for all of us to understand. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you give us this word. I thank you, God, for this church, for Redemption Hill, for the unity that you walk in. I thank you, Lord, for the correction in my own life of focusing on things that don't matter. Thank you that you've called us to be reasonable. Thank you that our culture is not reasonable. And that because of the reasonableness of Jesus, your light shines bright. Father, may it be through our reasonableness and our love for one another that we not only experience his joy in the brotherhood of the saints, but the world longs and runs to the gospel to which is our hope. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.